Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this interview, I had the opportunity to talk with Keith Giles and Cody Cook on the topic of hell. I thought it would be a really good discussion to have in our season on propaganda because I don't think there's any aspect of Christian belief that seems more propagandistic than the notion of hell, especially the notion that uh, a lot of um, modern uh, Protestant Western Christians have, which is this, uh, this concept of hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. We've discussed throughout the season how fear is often a very big motivator of, of propaganda uh, and a, a very big tool of propaganda. And so it doesn't seem like there's, there's anything that would instill more fear than being tortured for all of eternity. At the same time, if a hell of eternal conscious torment is real, or even a hell where uh, one is punished for some finite period of time and then annihilated, uh, if that is true, then is it really propaganda to, uh, to kind of purport this, this belief that one thinks is true? It was great to be able to, to talk with both Keith and Cody in this episode because uh, they come from different ends of the spectrum in terms of you know conservative, uh, more orthodox, and uh, somebody uh, like Keith who it would be more to the left of the spectrum. That hopefully has allowed us to avoid caricaturing um, different beliefs because we had kind of representatives from from each area and. Hopefully that gives us a very well-rounded discussion here. I think maybe more than, than most of the other episodes that I've done and the interviews that I've done, uh, it, it felt like this was more of a dialogue, a continuing dialogue, rather than coming down on some hard and fast conclusions. Because there's just a lot of murkiness to, uh, to the idea of propaganda and truth and, and how one... Uh, puts forth their beliefs in discussions. You know, it, do the intentions of somebody matter in regard to the information that they're talking about? Does the truthfulness of something matter? If something is untrue, does that automatically make it propaganda or are intentions and motivations a part of what makes something propagandistic? I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion and hopefully you do as well. I'm putting timestamps in the show notes so that you can jump around or go back to different sections that you find most beneficial. And I'm also going to put links in the show notes to uh, Cody and Keith's resources, uh, their various books and websites and such. All right, without further ado, here it is, the interview with uh, Keith Giles and Cody Cook. So I uh, I asked you guys to to have a discussion tonight because uh, over the last year or so I've really been thinking through through propaganda and uh, one of the things that I've done throughout the season is to look at how the church has has uh, inappropriately um, motivated people or used propaganda throughout history uh, ways that we've kind of been false prophets and and not true to the calling of Christ. Yeah. And um, one of the things that obviously comes up when people talk about the church is going to be this, this idea of hell, um, especially a lot of the, the modern conservative evangelical views of hell, where you're going to go to this fiery place of eternal torment. Uh, it seems like it's, it's fear mongering and it's something that's, uh, that, that's pushing people to make a decision 
um, out of inordinate fear. So I want to I want to kind of talk about that tonight. And before I do, though, I'd love for you to introduce yourselves and uh, and then we can kind of jump in. You so, go first, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, am I going first? OK, um, so my name is Keith Giles. Uh, I'm an author. Um, I wrote it. I just finished writing a, a seven part series called the Jesus Un series. Um, kind of taking, so I wrote one of the books I wrote in this series was Jesus Undefeated, and it's specifically dealing with this topic about the sort of historically three different views of uh, hell, and um, and so yeah, that's that's kind of the main reason I think I was invited to this conversation. Um, I also host a couple of podcasts, Heretic Happy Hour, Apostates Anonymous, Second Cup with Keith, and um. And I'm the co-owner of Quart Publishing. So that just happened recently. So, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I saw that you were listed as a co-owner. I didn't think that you were originally. No, that's that just happened in January. Yeah, Matthew okay. DeStefano and myself are now the co-owners of Quart. And uh, it's a brand new company, technically. I mean, we we incorporated it under under the name Quart, but it's under an LLC. And um, been putting out some really great stuff. We're super excited about, you know, new things we're doing in the future. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a new thing. And Inquire kind of publishes sort of theologically progressive-ish books. Was that, that an accurate description? Yeah, of it? so and that's going to shift a little bit. So yes, Choir has always been publishing Christian books by Christians on theology, on deconstruction, reconstruction themes, typically the kinds of books most Christian publishers won't publish because it's going to ask certain questions that they're not comfortable um, asking. So that's going to continue, but we're we're broadening out now, so we're actually publishing some post-Christian authors um, as well, and we're even we just launched a choir classics series. Where we're actually reprinting um, out of print or public domain books, like we're, we're publishing Brothers Karamazov with a new forward by Brian Zahn, um, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran with a forward by Paul Young. Um, I, I wrote a forward to uh, The Kingdom of God Is Within You uh, by Tolstoy. So you know we're, we're doing stuff like that, and just to kind of bring. Well, we feel like are some really great books that a lot of Christians probably have intended to read, but haven't gotten around to, yeah. to reintroduce those books with forwards by people they do recognize, you know, um, cool. hoping to entice them. Like David Bentley Hart wrote one for Alice in Wonderland. Um, <laughs> it's a great forward. And uh, anyway, so stuff like that. Well, and thanks for a chance to let me pitch, uh, uh, talk about my, my publishing company a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Cody? Yeah, so um, I, I've been on before. Um, so if somebody wants a little more information about me, they can always go back and listen to that one. Um, but um, I guess I'm here as, you know, my viewpoint is what you call conditionalism or annihilationism. So I, I don't believe in eternal conscious torment either. Um, but I think I'm, I'm a bit to the right of Keith, where I think Keith is kind of more into that sort of deconstruction, reconstruction mode. Um, I'm somebody who... Uh, I, I think I like Semper Reformanda better. <laughs> the idea that, you know, we're, we're sort of trying to stay within uh, kind of the Orthodox tradition, uh, but also asking questions about what's been what's been useful, what's been helpful, what's been biblical, what's not been biblical. Um, and so I'm uh, I, I'm I, I'm happy to maybe defend uh, my people who believe in eternal conscious torment to some extent. It's not my position. And I'll and I'll and I'll argue with their uh, the correctness of their views and whether it's biblical. Uh, but I also. Uh, I'm going to be somebody who I think is, I don't know exactly where Keith's going to argue, but, but I have a feeling he's at least going to be a little to the left of me on, on, on this question of, um, of whether the idea of, of hell or eternal conscious torment counts as propaganda or not. 
Um, so maybe we'll get into that and find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great start um, because I, I think it kind of um, puts puts you both on display here. C- Cody, uh, one of your books uh, talks a little bit about um, uh, biblical inerrancy and and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, so I I think you'd be you'd definitely be to the right, and and Keith would be to the left it's by the, book by I'm the way that of, I'm in that book. <laughs> yeah. 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 Keith was a, Keith was a general. So I was arguing with people who, who I saw sort of having, um, uh, wanting to sort of unhitch the old Testament from Jesus. And so Keith is one of the perspectives that I engage with, and he was uh, kind enough to, um, uh, grant me an interview so I could kind of make sure that I was representing him correctly. Uh, I couldn't get a hold of, um, some of the other folks, Greg Boyd, and Andy Stanley. So if I misrepresented them, that's their fault because they wouldn't grant me an interview. Uh, but Keith was willing to do that for me. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're really trying to be accurate and not misrepresent people today. Yeah. So we've, we've got everybody uh, across the spectrum, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and jump right in. And I think what would be helpful uh, is to kind of start with just a, a history and background of the idea of of hell, so we can kind of have a picture of the landscape. Um, for me, growing up, uh, eternal conscious torment, um, it was it was a surprise to me when I started reading some of the early church fathers and and going back a bit. And I remember the first one was uh, when I was reading Nissa's on the soul and the, the resurrection, and I came across this passage, and I was like. Man, he sounds like he's a universalist, but he can't be because he he was a Christian, like, and he was a you know a founding father, so he, yes. he couldn't believe that. And it, it, of course, I I went and did some of the legwork, and it's hard to like pin pin people down to positions that um you know we've sort of defined more in modernity, but mm-hmm. it really does seem like he was a universalist, and that kind of shook me a bit uh, that there was it seemed to be diversity. Uh, in in the early church in regard to a position on hell. So I don't know um, if you if either of you would speak. We can start with Keith since he is uh, yeah. the elder here and uh, <laughs> the most experienced. Um, so we'll just start with Keith. Yeah. Tell us a little so, bit about the, the the early church view on hell. Yeah, no, thank you. The, and that's a great way to start, Derek. I agree. Um, so I kind of had a similar thing too. I was raised my whole life to believe in eternal conscious torment, believed it, taught it, preached it um, as an ordained minister and until, yeah, I kind of came across a few things like you did. Um, the first one was a friend of mine, he has a radio program, his name is Steve Gregg. And um, and he, someone had called into his, to his, it's like a Bible question program. And it asked something, a question about one of the verses that, that seems to be about eternal torment. And then he gave this response, which blew my mind. And when I went and traced, you know, kind of chased it down and I realized that this was the truth, like this was right, as it was based on history, um, it blew, totally, totally blew my mind and changed my perspective. It, it set me on the course of investigating the historic Christian view of hell. And the, the realization was that there is no one historic Christian view of hell. There are three. And almost from the very beginning, there have been three. Um, and so one of the, I think, I think the reference that I got from him was he mentioned, um, there's a reference in a, it's called the, uh, what is it called? The, I think it's the, sh- Herzog, yeah, the New Shop Herzog Christian Encyclopedia, um, which says, this is a quote, in the first five or six centuries of Christianity, there were six known theological schools, of which four of them in Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, Edessa, those were universalist schools. One of them in Ephesus was conditional immortality, 
and one of them in Rome taught endless punishment. Um, and so that was a shock, like, whoa, is that real? Like, yeah. So not only were there three views, four out of the six schools taught universalism. And then, then when you dig into that, well, who were these people? Like Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius. Um, there are a lot of these church fathers who sat on some of the famous councils, like the Council of Nicaea, who, you know, uh, these are the, these are, like you said, church fathers who helped to, to uh, help us understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And they were universalists. And so they weren't heretics. Um, they were Christians. Um, what I also thought was fascinating, though, was it, it seems that there was a lot of, um, like this, this topic of, you know, what's your view on eternal conscious torment doesn't seem to have been a deal breaker for them. Because again, like on some of these councils, they all they were all Christians. They all they were all peers. They all respected one another for the most part, and they weren't upset with the fact that I'm on a council with you know I believe in annihilation, and this other guy you know who's leading uh, the council is a universalist, and maybe the guy next to me believes in eternal conscious torment, and they that was fine, you know what I mean? That wasn't a deal breaker for them, which I think is really the other the other way we know that they coexisted was the earliest creeds like the Apostles' Creed and others do not contain any references to eternal conscious torment or or anything like at all about one way or the other, annihilation or universalism. And I think it's because they recognized that they as Christians didn't all agree on that. So because those creeds were meant to say, well, here's what we do agree on, right? And so they put the things they did agree on, but they left out any views on hell. And I think it's because they recognized, yeah, we don't all agree on this, but they didn't seem that upset about it, um, at least early on. Um, and so I don't know if Cody agrees with that or not, but I mean, that's the, the history and the research that I've done um, and other sources that are kind of saying that, yeah, a whole lot of early church fathers were universalist. I think another bit of evidence in the, in the negative or from the other side is like Augustine. And when Augustine comes to write about his view of, of hell, which was eternal conscious torment, um, begins by saying, uh, he says that indeed very many do not agree with me. They take the other view, the universalist view, and in in a in a moment of of incredible grace and clarity, um, Augustine said that that the, that those Christians who disagree with him and those Christians who 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 instead embraced universalism um, did so. He said, "quote Without doing violence to the scriptures." So he recognized that both from his perspective. And from the universalist perspective, and also from the annihilationist perspective, whichever of those three views Christians took, all three of those views were Christian views, and they were all based on the same Bible, based on the same scriptures. It was just a difference of how they approached those scriptures and how they understood what they were reading. Um, so I think that's helpful for if, you, if listeners don't know that. Um, and again, I'm just interested in it. We're talking about propaganda, you know, uh, as well. Um, propaganda is what I grew up with. Propaganda was being told. This is the only Christian view. It's eternal conscious torment. It's the orthodox historical Christian view and any other views are heresy. That is not only false, that's, that's indoctrination. Education, true education would be what I just did to tell you that there were always three views. Here's what they were. And to say, then I could say, I prefer this one, but I would leave the listener the opportunity to make up their own mind about which of those three views they felt was more accurate. Um, that to me is education. So indoctrination or propaganda would be only telling you one view and telling you that's the, the, the only correct view and warning you with fear 
You better not listen to those other people. Don't read those books. Don't don't go to those seminars. Don't let them watch that YouTube video. Don't read that book because it's dangerous and it's heretical and it's, you know, it's demonic or whatever. Um, and that's where the propaganda comes in to kind of like keep people from having information that contradicts your information. Yeah. Yeah, certainly uh, silencing voices is is a, a huge tool that um, that unfortunately works pretty well. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, Cody, do you have anything to to add to that? Yeah, I I, I would push back a little bit um, on a few points. Um, it, it, in my reading of the early church fathers, I'd say that they were either vague, so they they statements that would either support eternal conscious torment or annihilation, but probably not universalism. Uh, or they were pro-eternal conscious torment, or less often, they're explicitly annihilationist or universalist. Um, you know, Keith's right, Augustine mentions a sizable number of universalists in the church, uh, but he does argue strongly against them. He does say that uh, their opinion is not, they're, they're not sort of arraying themselves against scripture, but he says that they're trying to soften everything that seems hard in scripture. So he's saying, you know, they're not, they're not sort of saying, I deny scripture, they're just sort of weakening it and reading it and, and misreading it is kind of what, how he how he sees it. Um, the, uh, the creeds do mention Jesus coming to judge, which I do think sort of at least implies eternal conscious torment or annihilation. I know that that's a little bit more complicated when you have, uh, you know, uh, purgatory and things like that in, in, in the mix. But, uh, as far as, uh, fathers who were explicitly universalist, there is Gregory of Nyssa, who has a strong Orthodox pedigree as, as Keith mentioned, he's somebody who was very influential for the creeds, uh, and the councils, early, early creeds and councils. Um, then there's of course, origin who um, was, I think, deeply loved in the early church, but uh, most, pr pretty much all the Orthodox thinkers seem to think, seem to see him as a bit off. <laughs> so like Jerome, for example, um, plagiarizes Origen left and right. But even he sort of goes, yeah, I love Origen. He's fantastic, but he's also kind of off. <laughs> and and so um, I, I, I do agree with, with Keith that they're, they're uh, there are these sort of three views represented early on. Um, I'm just not maybe quite as optimistic about how much universalism is represented by um, sort of the main orthodox thinkers. Yeah, and I would just respond to the the, the point um, Cody made about references to the judgment. Um, I think that's maybe a misunderstanding of what is meant by universalism. Like universalism doesn't mean everybody, you know, by, you know, go straight to heaven, don't pass uh don't pass the judgment seat you know go, go straight into into paradise um the it's the opposite actually uh patristic universalism as as most early christians taught it was that everyone passes through the fire so no one no one escapes the flame the flames are a metaphor um right the the how god's uh, god's god's a refining fire and a fuller's soap and so we shouldn't be afraid of soap soap doesn't kill anybody or destroy anybody um, and so that that fire also is a metaphor for purification and refinement. So facing the judgment to a universalist would not be seen as, oh, well, if I have to face the judgment, that means I don't uh, universal universalism can't be true. It would say, no, that that statement proves actually that we agree with that. Yes, everyone will go through this judgment, through this fire, through this this process of transformation and refinement, um, regardless of who they are. And so uh, it's, yeah, it's, I, I wouldn't, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't see a reference in the early creeds to a judgment as a, as any sort of like, a, like there's no reason to assume that means uh, eternal torment if it's not going to say it means that, or even annihilation, because there's no, there's no 
no clue one way or the other in that in that simple statement of judgment of what kind of judgment what happens in the judgment it just says there is a judgment a, a, a quick question Keith, just to clarify um um for that kind of uh purging uh view of um universalism would you do you see the purging as a kind of suffering is it painful in some way uh or 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 would you sort of move away from that kind of understanding of it because because i understand what you say about soap but we also have fire so <laughs> yeah they kind of communicate different things yeah yeah yeah. no i totally agree but I, I i would i would urge everyone to see both of those as metaphors right um i don't think we should take literally that there's a giant lake of suds in heaven that we'll all be thrown into and washed vigorously uh, any more than we should take a literal lake of flame and fire that we're all going to burn in somehow um, both of those are used as metaphors. And yes, I would concede that it seems that um, when those metaphors are used and fire is used or judgment is used, there is the the implication of that it's uncomfortable, that it's not a good thing, that there is suffering involved in that process. But again, it's a suffering that's for our good. I mean, I, I, I would turn to Hebrews 12, which specifically says that God God disciplines those he loves and all of us are disciplined. So we all, that means we're all the children of God. We're, we're all going through this. But the purpose of it, the reason why it says in Hebrews that God does this um, is so that we can share in the holiness of God and that that, that process yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, and so, uh, I, again, I, I would look at that as, yeah, it's probably not a pleasant thing, but it's uh, it's for a short time and it's for a specific purpose that in the end is for uh, for our good. It's so that we can share in the holiness of God. So would you say there's there's maybe an aspect of sort of threat even in the in the universe, the uh, apostolic universalist viewpoint or the uh, early church's universalist view, patristic universalist viewpoint? That there's a what? There's sort of an aspect of threat or... or, or uh, to, well, to, no, uh, I don't see it as a threat. I mean, to me, a threat would be do this or else this will happen. Where again, the universalist view is no matter what you do, you're going to you're going to go through this process. Yeah. But the good news is that this process is for your good. Yeah. Um, and it might not feel good at the time. Again, Hebrews says exactly that. No suffering feels good at, at the moment, but yeah. but in the end, we're grateful for our loving fa- parents or lo- loving father um, who does discipline us because we recognize that it was for our good. But, but there is maybe a promise of, of more suffering or pain for those who uh, don't get their act together <laughs> in this life. Is that correct uh, I think or it not? possibly is implied, but I don't know that it's automatic. I mean, okay. um, I mean, it's probably implied in some way, yeah, that that it's better to go through a sanctification process in this life mm-hmm. so that, right, it goes better with you. I mean, what, so Paul uses that metaphor, that exact metaphor of, you know, that everyone will pass through the fire. And uh, if he has good deeds, they'll be revealed again in this purifying fire metaphor as gold and silver and precious stones. So it's probably better for that guy uh, or that woman, that person, yeah. um, because, hey, there's something good there now. Hey, look, it revealed some something good for for Christ and for the kingdom, but he says even if someone passes through the fire and there's nothing, it all burns up and completely just poof, it's gone. You was nothing. It says and still they will be saved, but only as those who pass through the fire. So again, I I, I see that as uh, the promise that, yeah, what whatever the outcome is, it's still going to be in your good uh, yeah. at the end. The grace of God prevails. Yeah. So that's that's, that's the, the primary distinction. The universalist view has a, a positive end in mind, which the other views don't necessarily <laughs> for the loss. That's right. right. So, but, so I, the but, way but there I is still a promise is, of pain, maybe. Yeah. The way I say it is that all three views involve this fire metaphor. The difference is what what is the purpose and nature of the fire? 
So an eternal conscious torment, the purpose of the nature of the fire is just to torture you for eternity. That's it. Um, in annihilationism or conditional immortality, the purpose of the fire is to burn you up and destroy you uh, if you if you're not righteous. And and universalism, the purpose and nature of the fire is to uh, you know reveal the image of Christ in you and restore you uh, to some original innocence and goodness. Gotcha. So, sorry, Derek, I wasn't trying to take over. No, I was, no, I was no, just no, trying no. to clarify some <laughs> definitions. No, it, it's good. Um, I, I think one of the things that helped me to be more sympathetic to the uh, universalist view was because uh, sometimes it, things just seem too easy uh, uh, or like soft, as as you mentioned, Cody, about uh, Augustine. Um, but when I was reading George MacDonald, he has a piece, I think it was called The Consuming Fire. Yes. And so he's, he basically says that, look, you know, we have this difficulty figuring out, well, how can God not be in hell in the ECT view? You know, how is there a hell and how is God not in hell with people? But McDonald, he's like, look, heaven and hell are, are really the same place because everybody goes to be in the presence of God because right. God is is everywhere. He says it's just the people who are redeemed are going to experience God differently than the people who aren't. And so the way that I imagined it was, you know, I was reading this like right around the time that uh, the, the Thai soccer team was trapped in the cave for like two oh. weeks. And um, I was thinking, man, when when they come out and they're rescued and they come into the presence of the sun, like to all those people waiting outside, that sun is warm, it's beautiful, it's, it's awesome. But to those Thai kids who are coming out, like that sun is going to be abrasive. They're not going to be able to look at it. It's going to, I don't know, maybe burn their skin. I don't know how you react after two weeks living in a cave, right. but they're going to experience that sunlight different uh, than the people who are rescuing them. Nevertheless, they're going to be thankful that they're being rescued and that sun is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. And so I, I think um, I, I don't currently hold a universalist position, but I really like McDonald's rendition of that. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, who was, of course, a friend of McDonald's, says essentially the same thing in his in his novel, uh, The Great Divorce, right? That people, uh, that for some people, the, the beautiful green grass are like like sharp blades that are cutting their skin. Um, but the, the other people are walking barefoot and they, what's wrong with you? This is awesome. This is great, right? And, but they're both in the same in the same presence of God. Uh, just that some experience it in a different way. I think Rob Bell said that... Uh, um was it the hell was being at the party that's people it's like uh it's like it's like god's presence is a party that if you're if you're happy to be there you enjoy it if you're not happy to be there it's not very fun right and i remember thinking man i'm never going to go to one of rob bell's parties <laughs> uh but awesome. um <laughs> hell is being at the party all right sorry go on yeah so just uh one one more quick question in regard to the history and then we'll we'll dig into the propaganda um so we all recognize that there there seem to be a diversity of views. You know, we can we can um, discuss, uh, figure out to what extent we think each view was held. But it seemed like there was relative respect for the various views that that we know exist on hell. Um, but obviously, at some point in history, it seems like there was a shift um, where there there became one dominant view. Do you all know anything about the the history of of how that occurred or what influences um, kind of propelled ECT to the forefront and to exclusivity? So I have I have a theory because <clears throat> I don't think there's a specific sort of like it's not like well when Constantine showed up at this point in time then he decreed something and boom from this point on we see the shift. 
um, that I know of, there's there's no like def define, defining decisive from this point forward, eternal conscious torment became the dominant view. But I think there's some clues in it uh, in history. So one of them is, and this goes to our top to our uh, subject about propaganda. Um, in my book, Jesus Undefeated, I came across um, a kind of a disturbing <laughs> uh, realization. Um, so this was a book by Brian Edward Daly called Hope of the Early Church. And in this book, he mentions, um, he mentions first of all, that Basil, Basil the Great, uh, was an admirer of origin in his younger days. Uh, but in his later years, he became, quote, more severe in his expectations of the future and found the teaching of judgment valuable for the spiritual development of Christians. Um, and then he says, like Basil, John Chrysostom saw eschatological themes as a crucial part of his preaching ministry. Uh, Chrysostom explains the need for such eternal punishment in his 15th homily on 2 Timothy. And this is a quote, we have all, we have his sermons. So this is great. We can see what he preached on. And so uh, in this sermon he preached, he says, quote, um, since the greater part of our virtuous from constraint rather than from choice, the principle of fear is of great advantage to them in eradicating their desires. Let us therefore listen to the threatenings of hell fire that we may be benefited by the wholesome fear of it. So it seems that there were some church fathers who were very vocal and honest about the fact that they may or not personally necessarily believe in eternal conscious torment, but they saw it as something that was um, effective, right? Like, hey, it would really, it really works. It really motivates people using this fear, the way Chrysostom says, right? Um, the benefits of fear. And if we preach this fear, then we get, in their view, in their mind, more committed Christians, more, ex because they're terrified, you know, raise your hand if you want to burn in hell forever. That's, this is where it led to. Um, and so that, that to me seems to be around the time it, I would see it started to go in that direction, that there were church fathers who saw it as a useful tool. And so again, this is probably maybe the beginning of the propaganda phase. The other thing is going back to what I read a minute ago from um, the, um, the, the encyclopedia about those six schools. Um, so again, Four of those schools were uh, universalists. They were located in Antioch, Alexandria, Caesarea, and Edessa. The universalist school, uh, so those are universalists. Um, the one that was in Ephesus taught conditional immortality or annihilation. And the one school that taught eternal conscious torment was located in Rome. And so we can see that over time in church history, yes, around the time or post-Constantine, that um, as the more and more that Rome became, became the center of Christian power and thought, in other words, if you were in Rome and you were part of Christendom at the time, um, they had the power now of the state to sort of impose their views um, on the Christian world. And so I would say it's, the, it's those two things. It's, it's early Christians who saw it as advantageous to preach fear because they felt like there were benefits to preaching that fear and eternal conscious torment fits the bill. Um, but also, um, you know, you start off with six schools teaching different things, and one of them is in Rome. Um, I could see where over time, those other schools kind of get shouted down and marginalized. And by the way, in, in the Orthodox, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, those teachings of universalism didn't fade away, they continued, right? And so that's another thing we can look at and see that uh, there are Eastern Orthodox Christians who still firmly embrace Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa and their views. Um, and that's that's sort of the history that they lean back on of, tr of tradition. 
of teaching this uh, patristic universalism. Yeah, I found David Bentley Hart's uh, That All Shall Be Saved really, really insightful and uh, and helpful yes. in in avoiding caricatures of, yes. uh, you know, they're just they're just soft and, and uh, not intellectual. Right. Cody, um, anything to add? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if, if the if the pragmatic um, arguments necessarily proved that people were were being disingenuous because I think we still use those pragmatic arguments today. Um, you know, people who genuinely believe in ETC will ask me, well, you know, how can you get people saved if you're not telling them God's going to torture them forever? <laughs> um, so they still believe it, but they still they also rely on a pragmatic argument. Um, and I'm I always feel weird about kind of you know psychoanalyzing people and and, and guessing kind of what people's motivations are. But um, it is interesting, you know, some people will sort of blame Constantine or Augustine, but clearly that ETC goes back before then. Um, I think you could at least explain the rise of the three views. Uh, um, by just reference to scripture, because there are some passages that seem universalist, some passages that seem annihilationist, and some passages that seem like ETC. Um, and the, the way I kind of look at it is that um, uh, <laughs> ETC is kind of like what you get when you literally translate a handful of proof texts. And so that the, the literal reading of a few proof texts that seem very strongly to suggest something often will, will impress one upon the mind in a strong way. Whereas I think annihilationism kind of is almost like um is almost like more of like a meta narrative. You kind of lean back and look at scripture and you see this, you know, what happens in the garden and you have death and you have the promise of life. And so that kind of fits a little bit with this big picture. And then I think universalism is often more like reading between the lines. You kind of look at this uh the grace that God has and they sort of promise that, like you read something like Jonah, where God never says, you know, if you if you repent, I'll I'll spare you. But Somehow that's what happens anyway. You know, what God actually says literally is not even really what he's going to do. God is God is even more gracious than he is, uh, you know, uh, wrathful or whatever, right? Um, so I think you can explain the rise of the three views with reference to scripture. Why does one become more popular? Um, I want to look more into the six schools things. I've heard that reference, but I, I've also, I, I don't know how, how, how strong that, how strongly that is rooted in, in history, but um when you read somebody like, uh, I think Tertullian makes the argument that, you know, yes, of course, we have to be nonviolent, we have to love our enemies, but one day we'll be comforted by the fact that we'll be able to hear their screams in hell. Um, and so th there may be, uh, a, I'm, I'm not hopefully not getting too Freudian here, but I think that there, there could be, at least for some people, certainly for Tertullian, this promise that, you know, yes, I have to behave well now and, and, and not get vengeance on my enemies, but but I can, you know, one day I'm really going to enjoy hearing and burn. Um so that that kind of desire for vengeance might factor in, and I think also Keith's correct that there's um, this desire to get converts, this desire to um, keep people on the straight and narrow, and the, the this you know this threat of eternal conscious torment seems like a a strong motivator. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a you know a good uh, point for us to to kind of move into propaganda more specifically. Um, because when we're talking about changes and shifts and and that coming as a result of you know power, okay, there there's more centralization, more power. Um, I, I think that leads into kind of what we're we're discussing here. Because Cody, before we started, you're like, I I kind of need a definite. We need a working definition of propaganda to go with. And um, 
you know, you'd think that after I did as many episodes as I, I did, that I, it would be really easy to come up with a definition. And, you know, as I was thinking about it and going back through the season, I was like, I don't know if I ever actually just set out a concise definition because I do a whole lot of exploring what it is and how it works. But to to kind of condense that into a simple definition is difficult. But uh, Cody, you you are really thorough and you're really good at uh, kind of um, making things uh, structured and work. So I like the definition that you came up with and and we can kind of uh, go with that. And it plays off of what uh, you know what Keith was just saying with in, in regard to power. So the working definition that we have here is an effort by those with power to manipulate public sentiment to conform to an approved view in order to bring about desired ends. Um, it, does that does that work for everybody? Yeah, um, that works for me. I think, um, and I think there was some discussion, which I'm sure we're going to get into in this conversation. I hope we do anyway in this conversation, because uh, we we had a sort of thread going. You guys mainly had a thread going before we jumped on the call, uh, kind of trying to arrive at that definition, which I thought was very very insightful and very helpful. Um, but the difference too between, so that's a good definition of like sort of the origins of propaganda, right? Um, but then there's also then a, a secondary consideration of once the propaganda has been created for that means and for that end by those people who want to maintain power and control, um, there are always people uh, at sort of lower levels who may not even be aware of the propagandized nature of the of the statements that they are now because they honestly believe them they genuinely take this as fact and truth and now then they're they're repeating it right and so those people become propagandists who didn't who may be maybe oblivious to the propagandized nature of that information and so they're they're continuing to perpetuate that and i would argue you almost need those people for it to be effective, right? Because um, I think if everyone, you know, if most of everyone knew, yeah, this is this is BS. We're just doing this. We're just saying this to maintain power. At some point, a few people are going to go, I don't feel good about this. This isn't great. You know what I mean? Like I see people really full of fear, really suffering over this message. I know there's nothing to be afraid of, but I'm the one making them really, you know, full of anxiety and fear. Uh, it wouldn't work. So you almost need for it to work and be successful, you need a, that layer of people who do genuinely believe it and who, who do think that what they're doing and saying is uh, is true and therefore must be repeated and must be emphasized. Um, yeah, and I was going to say, I think it's it also needs to be said that people who disseminate propaganda, who create the propaganda rather, um, may also believe it to some extent. I, I think that they're probably being manipulative and a little bit, um, but, but, but they, they can still sort of say, you know, yes, of course, we need to invade Iraq, and here's the reason why. But they're still going to sort of engage in this uh, this kind of manipulative approach to try to getting people on their side. That's not entirely like, well, let's have an open, honest discussion about it and see what we think, right? Yeah. And so, I think that is at least part of it too. That it, propaganda isn't necessarily a false statement, but it is, I think, something that's manipulative. So I so I I think that i see what you're saying again i think to a point but i also think that there might so to the person might really believe it but but there's also i i think i don't know if this is in is this necessary but it seems like with most propaganda there is an element of it's not that the propaganda itself is necessarily true as much as it's a means to an end what they yeah. believe in is the result like invading iraq 
So the people that made up that story, right, our, our, the CIA and our government, right, our, our intelligence uh, community, they believed it was a good thing if, if we invaded Iraq because they believed they were bad actors and they just, and so they needed to come up with reasons to convince the American public why this was justified. So they knew that the, 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 the reasons were, were false. That was the propaganda, yeah. but they believed in the outcome. They believed in, oh, but this needs to happen for whatever reason. Well, so an example that comes to my mind immediately because he was such an effective propagandist is Hitler. So was, was Hitler a true believer uh, or not? And, and I think it's on one level, he probably was, but on the yeah. other level, there, there's this manipulation of reality that that's, take, that's taking place that, uh, you know, Hitler wasn't open to inquiry. You know, he wasn't like, well, let's have a talk about it and see if this these weird racial theories really hold up to scientific scrutiny. Um, yeah. Right. So, so there I, could be layers. I think I agree with you, yeah. Cody. There could be layers to it as well, because I think um, uh, hopefully we don't get too far down, you know, uh, chasing rabbits here. But um, I remember watching a, maybe about a year or so ago, there was a pretty good documentary on PBS about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about how early on in his presidency, he personally could care less about abortion. Yeah. Um, he didn't care about gay people getting married, you know, and, and he had said he had made statements to this effect even before he was president. Let him get married. He doesn't care. Right. Yeah. But there were people around him that convinced him that, no, we needed to have a strong message in this direction because it's going to speak to our base and they're going to you know, get excited and vote for you. And so he was like, oh, OK, so so there is still. So, yeah, I think there's certain parts, let's say, of um, a political campaign that somebody might be a true believer. They really do believe like immigrants are the worst thing ever and they're going to take your job and and impose sharia law or whatever um so maybe maybe that part of it they really do believe but there's other parts of their of their statements and of their propaganda that they really they they really don't believe but they see it as like well hey mm. but but my people believe it people that follow sure. me really want to hear me stand up and say these things and if i do i get more votes and my rallies get bigger and yeah. my points go up or whatever well like you said earlier the ends justifying the means right um it I, I think also that this element of power is kind of important because to me, I think that sometimes we talk about people's you know, motivations for believing in ETC that might not be entirely rooted in truth, right? And I think that people have motivations for believing in universalism too sometimes that aren't entirely rooted in truth or, or proper exegesis of scripture. It's something they want to believe. But I don't think that universalism can be wielded as a weapon in the same way that eternal conscious torment or even annihilation could, which I yeah. think could put it in, you know, if it's incorrect, especially, it could put it in the category of disinformation or falsehood or something that's um, not stated, well, uh, something that's not entirely believed for the right reasons, but it's still maybe not propaganda because no one really gains power over somebody else by by teaching, by, by saying that eventually everyone's going to be in heaven or something. Yeah, but <laughs> the internal, sorry, sorry, Derek. No, no. But if, if I was going to put on my eternal conscious torment hat, Mm -hmm. um, I would say because because if I really genuinely believed that God's plan was if you're not if you don't pray the prayer and if you're not in, if you're not a Christian uh, yeah. and you are going to burn in hell forever, then I would look at someone like me who is teaching universalism as a threat. I would sure. see that this is evil, this is wrong. You are leading people astray. They are going to burn in hell forever, and you're not telling them the truth. And therefore, right? I I think I could I could see someone with a universalist message if I was eternal conscious torment believer um, as a form of propaganda in the sense that it's a false message and that yeah. they would probably, they would probably see it as, well, you're just, you're, you're attracting followers to yourself. 
Sure. You're, you're getting people to follow you and to believe your lie uh, by your book or whatever. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, it can go both ways. I think you could, depending on your perspective and your assumptions. Yeah. So maybe that would be a, a good place to kind of zoom in. I don't know where you all want to go with it, but I think when, when people discuss propaganda, a lot of times they focus on the fear aspect, which is why I think ECT gets a lot of flack because, well, you're just scaring people, which is clearly yeah. manipulative. Um, and and so uh, perfect love casts out fear and and that's just propaganda when you're trying to to scare people yeah. into the kingdom. Um, and that's true. Like fear, fear is a big component of a lot of propaganda, government propaganda, abusers do the same thing uh, with victims. Uh, all that kind of stuff. But when you get into the the corporate propaganda, they don't scare so much, but their their role is to incentivize in other ways. And so they shape your desires through through their sorts of propaganda. and they yes. um, you know, they just bombard you with things that get you to to desire certain things and they kind of hold a carrot and stick out in front of you yep. um, instead of having a stick behind you hitting you right. Um, and and I think people would view universalism as sort of that carrot and stick kind of thing. Like, well, we all want, you know, that nice, nice fluffy heaven where I don't really have to worry about evangelizing. I don't have to worry about um, people going to hell and, and that nasty message. Uh, whereas with ECT, it, it's the fear aspect. Yet both of those can be propag uh, propagandistic. So maybe uh, and, and annihilation too, right? ECT and annihilation kind of go together because um, even though you're not suffering forever on annihilationism uh, or conditional immortality, yes. right? Ceasing to exist and some forms. Correct me if I'm wrong, Cody, but some forms would say that uh, there is suffering until you cease to exist. Yeah, for, 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 yeah. There's a lot of views. Yeah, yeah, a lot of okay. forms of that. So maybe you could talk about that. So we've got two kind of methods for, for propaganda. You've got the incentivizing, um, and then you've got the, uh, through fear and you've got incentivizing through, um, desire. So maybe if you wanted to defend, and you've been defending ECT here for a little bit, uh, maybe you want to defend your own views from those two. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say something similar about both. I mean, to me, that definition I gave was, was kind of meant to sort of include all the elements that I think are what we are sort of thinking about when we talk about propaganda. We're not just talking about misinformation. Um, I think on some level, we're talking about a power play. And, um, you know, th there can be a power play in, in universalism, as Keith mentioned, somebody trying to grow a following, for example. Um, but I don't think it lends itself to it as much, um, which is not to say, I mean, you have advertising, that's kind of a power play, right? It's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, buy this razor and you'll get the hot chicks. That's not like a, it's not meant to, you know, uh, frighten somebody, but it is still a power play. It's, it's a way to try to get people uh, to give you something uh, to, to manipulate them. So yeah, universalism can work in that way. I think what I'd say about, I mean, I, I don't know that I'd say something unique about annihilation in this, in this point, because I think, you know, ETC is basically just in a similar boat as annihilation, but just more so, which is there is this threat, there is this danger and uh, you know, is that, is the fact that there's something to be afraid of, does that make it inherently a power play? And I would say, no, I, I think, you know, you imagine a, a preacher who's trying to get a, his, 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 uh, um, his flock to listen to him, to obey him. He might use help. Uh, somebody who is an abuser, somebody who's I mean, sexually abusing someone young and will, and will warn them with this threat 
you know, well, you know, if you, if you tell on me, God's going to get you whatever, yeah. um, you, you can imagine something like that. And, and that's like a pretty obvious power play. Um, and you know, you could, you could also, you know, you could take out eternal conscious tour by the slide in annihilation there. You know, you can, you can imagine the seventh day Adventist pastor also trying to, um, get, get his flock to be on his side, uh, by threatening judgment of God in some other way. Right. Um, so I think just the real question is, is, is the motivation, is it a power play or is it not a power play? Because if someone is saying, I think this is true, I'm telling you what I believe, um, and here's my arguments for it, and I'd be happy to hear yours. I, you know, somebody who's making that kind of a case for eternal conscious tormentor and annihilationism, I don't think is a propagandist in the sense that they are uh, creating propaganda. Um, so I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if that, that gets us anywhere or not, but that, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I, I sorry, really quick analogy. I, I think about with uh, with my kids, you know, if I tell them not to go in the street and they say why, and I say, well, because a car can hit you and that could hurt you or kill you. Um, yes, there's an element of fear involved there, but like there, there's a really big truth and reality that I'm exposing. And I guess you'd say intent goes a long way in regard to uh, to whether something's propaganda or not. Yeah, okay. I think so. I, I, as, I, as Cody was talking, I was trying to think. I mean, so I have the um, the experience that, you know, I, I used to believe for the most of my life, I believed and taught eternal conscious torment. For probably about a year and a half, I was annihilationist. But <laughs> um, I was convinced, oh, this is it. This makes sense. Um, and then I became someone who embraced uh, progressive universalism. And, and that's where I've landed now. Um, but, but because of that, I have taught and preached all three views. And so I was thinking as Cody was talking, you know, was I, was I spreading propaganda when I believed in a conscious torment? Not knowingly, um, because I believed it, right? I would, I wouldn't look back and say those things that I said, I said was, uh, because again, we're making a distinction between someone who knows it's not true, but I, but I see value in it. So I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I mean, certainly I saw there was a value because when I, when I did altar calls um, after preaching a sermon that included, you know, some sort of allusion to eternal torment, uh, hey, I got more people to come forward than what if I said it doesn't matter either way. <laughs> um, but I, you know, but I, but so when I preached all three of those things, or I believed all three of those things, um, I wouldn't have thought I was uh, creating propaganda because I believed at the time I believed it when I said it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, though it doesn't change the fact that when I taught, especially eternal conscious torment, I was unintentionally a propagandist. I was, I was sharing things I thought was true, but things that I frankly had not really investigated for myself. I had not really looked to see very closely. What do I base these views on? I never did. I never ever went and examined the eternal conscious torment view. Like, okay, what are the scriptures that teach this? And what does it really say? And does it really say this? And how does that map to other scriptures? Like I never did that until someone suggested to me that there were other views that were equally, you know, biblical. And it was only then that I was willing to go and do that kind of scrutiny. Um, and then when I did, I was like, oh, yeah, that these verses don't teach eternal conscious torment. In fact, um, you know, it's never mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament at all. And and the references that supposedly say this in the New Testament are Jesus quoting Old Testament prophets who again, weren't talking about where anybody went after they died. But I never saw that until I was able to step away from it a little bit. Well, it's I hard think to, that, oh, sorry. 
That goes to the the question I think Cody raised when we were discussing uh, in Messenger, um, which is, but if if you say that you were a propagandist at that point, uh, or you were propagandizing, then not out of intent, but just because you were you were not informed correctly, you believed the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, does that just mean like any false belief makes you a propagandist for that thing? Or is there something that distinguishes um, propaganda from just false belief? See, that's to me, this is hard to split a hair on because if there is a false belief, it's a belief that is not based in fact and it's not true. And people are teaching it because they just don't know it isn't true. I mean, I don't see how that's any different than any other truth, or any, any other statement that isn't true, a belief that isn't true, whether it's political or theological. Or marketing message, you know what I mean? Like, drink this and your hair will grow back. Like, you could really believe it, but if it really doesn't work, well, then it's not true. And you're you're sharing something that you may maybe you believe it's true, but it just isn't, right? And so you can't. There's no other way to look at it. For my the way I can see it is that you are repeating something that you believe to be true, but it is not true. Um, then, like it or not, you are participating in the propagandizing. Uh, you know, uh, of that statement or of that belief uh, or of that product or whatever it happens to be. But, but Keith, maybe the distinction I think is that is really is whether it's a power play or not, because I don't think that when you were preaching eternal conscious torment or annihilationism, you know, at, you know, at that point I was trying to manipulate my congregation and try to get power over them. But once I became universalist, then I wasn't, then I wasn't doing that anymore. And, and I think to me, that's the difference between something's propagandist and it's not because I mean, I, I I've said and thought false you know things before um you know I, um uh you know i i've made false statements about you know i think that's that actor in this who was also in this other movie right i mean i wasn't a propagandist because i said something that was incorrect um but if, if somehow i could use that to try to get power over somebody then maybe that would be different right so so let me let me just respond to that because it's a good point but i would i would say that even though when i believed eternal conscious torment and i was preaching that and no i i wouldn't say you know, I could go in a time machine and interview myself. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm doing this so I can have power over people. But it doesn't change the fact that I did have power over people. That fear message did give me power over them. And again, that wasn't my motivation, but it's just still true that because I preached that, the fear factor involved in that message did give me a certain influence of power over those people that if I preached something different, wouldn't. I wouldn't have the power over them, Right. But did, did you benefit from, because, because that's, I mean, I, I've had, you know, I know pastors, I've had pastors who believed in ETC and annihilationism, and, and I didn't, I wasn't under the ETC uh, pastor's thumbs more than I was the annihilationist pastors. Um, and so I, I think, you know, saying something from a position of power that's incorrect is different than using your power to try to get something from somebody. So I, I would say, um, if you phrase it, the way you just did about like, did I, did I get something from them? Did I personally benefit? Probably, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe you could argue, well, th th those people stayed in my church and they continue to tithe and therefore I kept making, you know, money every month. Um, but I don't think it, I don't, I don't think I necessarily have to like benefit specifically um, from it as much as um, I was still manipulating those people to uh, behave a certain way and to agree with what I believed. And so um, the outcome was that by preaching that fear, um, 
it kept people sort of in the group, you know what I mean? Part of the part of the club that agrees with this idea. So there, so it, it doesn't necessarily, I would say, have to be that, oh, I have to benefit in some way financially or in some other way for it to be propaganda. I think it, I think the benefits of of the teaching or this or, or the idea or you know propagating the idea can be nuanced. It can it can have other, you know, there are other outcomes that still in, in the long run are, are better for me. Maybe, maybe there uh, maybe there can be a, a side analogy here. It kind of makes me think of um, you know the the Southern Baptist Convention, Rachel Den Hollander, and um, you know the the sexual abuse and all the stuff that was kind of coming out there and and then you know, they get them on a hot mic that said, um, you know, where they said, well, we have to, you know, appease the base, basically, uh, where they're like, well, we don't want this stuff to come out. And so, OK, the 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 top leaders are are uh, covering up information, not releasing things. Um, they're they're propagandists, right? There's your uh, Cody, your intent and and power and all of that stuff. But if I'm a. Southern Baptist missionary who benefits from the Southern Baptist church being in good standing and, and having members, or even if I'm, if I'm a member and I have a long time Southern Baptist, uh, uh, congregant, um, I don't want to believe that there's abuse going on. Um, and I will swallow what they tell me, what the leaders tell me, um, and I will defend them and I will do all of these other things. And so even though I'm not in power, and I'm not, um, you know, I, I am not doing that necessarily to directly benefit. Like I don't get get money from that per se. Nevertheless, I there is benefit to it, and, and you could extend this into you know patriotism and and yes. the idea of American benevolence. And it, yeah. it's good for me to believe that our wars are good. Yeah. Um, even though the government is the intentional propagandist, sure. I benefit from lower oil prices from, you know, yeah. all of these other things from, from having the solidarity of other people who are patriots like me. So yeah. it's, I think that's, that's what in our discussion again on Facebook, yeah. uh, that's what is, is difficult, I think for me. And it sounds like Keith a little bit here is that it really does seem hard to distinguish when something's propaganda versus just false belief. But your example of the, you know, getting an actor wrong, like it clearly seems like there's some there's some line somewhere. Yeah, I, that's what I was trying to say, Derek. Thank you. I think I think you did a good job of explaining that much better than I did. Yeah, because like I may not personally benefit, but the if you kind of trace the source of the propaganda up, like you did, to the top levels, um, I'm part of that organization, right? In some way, identify myself in some way, whether that's Southern Baptist or the Republican Party or whatever it happens to be, right? Um, I identify myself with them, and so by participating in the propaganda, I'm protecting my own identity in some level too. I sleep better at night if I believe that we're the good guys and we're doing the right mm -hmm. things for the right reasons. And I and and so my continuing to perpetuate the propaganda that comes down to me from those people, um, maybe it doesn't benefit me in, in some tangible way, but it does benefit in that it it maintains the power structure of the uh, of the organization that's perpetuating the propaganda for that reason. To increase their reach, to increase their stability, to to make it so that you know they continue to remain and have power and influence. Well, and this is something we're kind of touching on, but Derek had mentioned a little bit more in the chat, which is the, the idea of the dupe who participates in his own propagandizing, right? Uh, because yes. there's there's something that he gets from it. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's probably I mean more often than not just the belonging to the group having somebody to sort of to hate or <laughs> I think there's oftentimes in propaganda the idea of an enemy. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. Yes. Um. So yeah. Um. You know. Which I think is kind of a bigger question, which is you know, what are our motivations for believing things? And uh, you know, the 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 older I get, the more I I learn that generally speaking, our motivations for believing things. Uh, our motivation for believing things is not well it's true <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, there, there's some other motivation that sort of gets us there and then we sort of go back around the around the back way and you say okay well here's my arguments for it i've already, now that i believe it I'll, I'll give you my arguments for it right um and so you know th- there's in, in that sense you know if, if humans were you know capable of thinking more critically propaganda would not be <laughs> quite so powerful because right. we'd ask those questions at the front end and not the back end mm-hmm. that's right no, that's a, that's a really great point too, Cody, because um, most of us don't believe, even if we believe correctly, most of us don't believe what we believe because we first um, examined all possible, we did a massive amounts of research and we looked at everything from every angle and we listened to all the different voices and only then and only then we made up our minds, right? So, um, and we will, we sometimes like to think that that's true. We like to convince ourselves subconsciously that Oh, well, I've examined all the other views. Well, not, you know, not really, <laughs> not, not objectively. Yeah. Um, usually we change our minds for different reasons. And then, like you said, we go back and, because in fact, that's exactly what I just said I, I did. Right. I, I believed eternal conscious torment. Then somebody gave me some information that I didn't have before that made me go back. And now I'm, now I'm rethinking now, now I'm investigating, right. Now I'm willing to go back and look and see, Oh, whoa, maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, and then I changed my mind, right? I became annihilationist. And that lasted for a year and a half. And I thought, oh, now I'm right. But then if you then, then something else happened and someone showed me something else, I'm like, oh, what? And then I go and read, now I go and examine my annihilationism. And then I'm like, oh, okay. But um, but most of us will either do a quick Google search and we're done. Oh, there you go. I got the answer. Okay, now, now I know what to believe. You know, um, I mean, even when I was a Christian and I did apologetics and stuff in college, um, you know, I would say, I would even tell myself that, oh, I've looked at all the other religions. And, and but the truth was, I was a Christian because I was born and, and raised in a, in a nation of, of Christianity, right? Where my choices were Baptist or Methodist or Episcopal or Lutheran. Uh, you know what I mean? I never once read any Vedas or any of the teachings of Buddha. I didn't attend, you know, a Jewish temple or anything like that or a synagogue. So, um, you know what I mean? Like, I, so I, I would tell myself, Oh, I have investigated these other beliefs, but not truly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's even that level too of recognizing that even the way we change our minds about things uh, is is not always, if we're honest, isn't always based completely and only on objective. Yeah. Study. Well, and, and to, to cut ourselves a little bit of slack, I mean, there are certain areas where I feel um, equipped to, to to do deep research, and a lot of areas where I don't. And I think a lot of times social uh you know just sort of going along with what everybody else says is a shortcut for a couple reasons one because we're finite and we can't you know investigate every question to its fullness you know at some point we have to we have to take some shortcuts and um it's beneficial for us to take the shortcuts uh to take the shortcut of just sort of believing what everybody else around us believes because then at least we fit in um and so yeah the only time it really hurts us is when you know when reality sort of comes smack against us in the face um so yeah, it's um I mean I, I think about that a lot. 
I have a tendency to try to sort of like say, well, if I don't know, I'm going to just sort of try to say I'm agnostic. Well, I kind of think this, but maybe this, uh, but I'm not really sure. I, I, that's a practice I've tried to sort of inculcate. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the, the more I, the more I think about it, I mean, the more I try to research things, the more I don't know. And I don't have time. I don't have time right. to research every question, even these minute questions about like my political beliefs, or my religious beliefs. There's a certain point I go, that one's not that important to me. So sure. I'm kind of, you know, I'll just sort of have some tentative views, but I'll, I'll say I don't really know for sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but I think that those shortcuts that we take that we have to take are the reason why propaganda, I think, is partly so effective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I guess what I would say is um, the, the the person who is a, who is creating the propaganda uh, is aware of that, that 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 is how most people behave. And so they kind of depend on that. Right. They take advantage of that. Yeah, this reminds me uh, a little bit. If you guys haven't uh, read any of Drew Johnson's work on epistemology, it's um, it, this conversation is making it click a lot more for me because he he talks about um, you know how Western Western rationalism. A lot of times we think that you know we're very deductive and um, we do, we come to logical conclusions, but how so much is really based in authority and and like where we place our trust in authority and. Um, yeah, I think that would be that would be a great uh, resource for you guys if if you're really interested in in pursuing that, like yeah, how we know those things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think it's true. Like a lot of a lot of what we believe is inherited or borrowed, um, or like you said, it's just easier to go with Pastor Bob. He's been to seminary. He's telling me he knows the answer. Well, I'll trust him. He knows more than I do. Right. So I I told you guys that I would keep it try to keep it around an hour. So I've got one more question, whittled it down. And, um, uh, you know, it, things are a bit different when you have two people instead of one, it, it, but I like it. I like the discussion, the back and forth. It's great. Um, so last question to kind of bring us back to um, hell. And one of the, one of the questions that I had is, um, you know, obviously we're talking about this because hell is, is often used in our culture as um, as, as part of the gospel message, you mentioned Keith uh, using it for altar calls, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a core aspect of the gospel for, for a lot of people, because when Jesus saves you, well, what is he saving you from? Um, he's saving you from the wrath of God is, is how it's viewed in, in our culture by and large. So, um, but you know, I, I really, I tried to think back through the gospels, you know, back through acts and everything. And, you know, Peter's gospel message to the 5,000 and, and all these other things. And I mean, I might be missing something, but I, I did not see hell as a, a prime component in the gospel message. And in fact, like when you're, when you're reading through Mark, especially, but all of the gospels, you know, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's all about the kingdom, the kingdom, the yeah. kingdom. Yes. I have brought the kingdom, the kingdom is coming. Um, and, and Jesus tells you, how to live that kingdom. Um, so his salvation is the kingdom. Um, would you talk a little bit about hell as a, you know, in the gospels and in, in maybe the early church, but uh, hell as a component of the gospel, is it something that that should even be or or is the kingdom the gospel and, and how is that different? Yeah, well, I would agree with you, Derek. Uh, I, I, I kind of came to a similar realization much later in my Christian life, sadly, um, the recognition that the gospel that Jesus preached didn't include any sort of a shotgun wedding, um, you know, 
Raise your hand if you don't want to burn in hell forever. I see that hand. Pray this prayer. Okay, you get out of hell. Uh, he, he doesn't present the gospel that way. Like you said, the good news, the gospel is the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is at hand or near, you know, close enough to touch. Um, you can experience a kingdom reality right now, not after you're, you know, you don't have to wait till after you're dead. Um, so that's that aspect of it. Um, and and then, like you said, when you go to the book of Acts, when you see the sermons that are preached, something like seven or eight sermons preached in the book of Acts, um, none of them involve, again, the shotgun wedding, that you believe this or else you're going to suffer eternal torment. Um, I mean, to me, again, one of the most shocking things about it, too, is like when Paul is in Rome and he's speaking to idol worshiping pagans. And his message to them uh, is that there is a God that they don't know that loves them. That is their father, and they are his children, and that this God loves them and blesses them and hopes that they would turn and know this God, um, and that this God is the one in whom they all live and move and have their being. Wow, that is, where's the judgment? Where's the fear? Where's the repent or else? You know what I mean? Um, that's amazing. You know what I mean? So like, so yeah, you don't really see these these hell messages incorporated in the in preaching of the gospel and Paul uh, and he preaches the same gospel of the kingdom. There's like eight different references where Paul says he preached the good news of the kingdom. So he's preaching the same thing Jesus is preaching. Um, so yeah, for me, I, I that's the way I see it. I, I don't believe, I, I think that the hell message, the threat of hell, um, as we've kind of talked about, I think it crept in, you know, in later centuries. It was seen as something by many like John Chrysostom and Basil the Great and some others who felt like, hey, this really works. This is... You know, if we use this fear, there's a benefit of fear. It gets people more motivated. It gets them to do what we want them to do, to behave the way we want them to behave. Um, so I, I feel like that's the way this has kind of crept in and it's become now the gospel message, but it's not the original gospel message. It's not the way the gospel is communicated by Jesus or by Paul or Peter or any of the other apostles. Um, so personally, I don't, I don't think there should be, you know, we shouldn't be preaching this as part of the gospel. The, the gospel is good news. Um, you know, it's this idea, like Paul says, that God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, and he's reconciled the world to himself. That's great news. Um, so I personally would rather see those kinds of things. Like when the next time the guy takes the megaphone and the big signs and goes out to preach in the parking lot to people trying to go see a sports game or a concert or something, if they would just, if they would just get their sermon from Paul in the book of Acts uh, about when he says to the, the out of worshiping pagans, that would be refreshing. That'd be really great. But when they, when they say repent and believe and, and you will be saved, I guess what, like, what yeah. would you say they're being saved from? Oh, no, that's and, a great question. Um, and, and, and yeah, that again, uh, Cody probably disagrees with me, but um, I was gonna say you have to buy Keith's book for the answer to that. one. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> book. Uh, Jesus Unforsaken deals with that probably more specifically because that's about penal substitution and answers that question about why did Jesus have to die and what's going on with that. Uh, Jesus undefeated probably talks about it too. Um, but I guess the, the, the short podcast version of the, of that answer for me would be um, when I go and look at the places where Jesus talks about being saved or where people even ask the question, what must we do to be saved? You know, that's a good question. Saved from what? Because, so I, I, I look at it this way. This is what I, this is what I believe that Jesus showed up at a time in, in history when his people, the Jewish people, were looking for a Messiah, a violent Messiah, who's going to lead an insurrection, storm the Capitol, uh, kill Caesar, 
overthrow the Roman army and establish the kingdom of God in a political sense, a Jewish kingdom, the, the throne of David, uh, you know, once again in Jerusalem. That's what they were expecting. That's the, that's the Messiah they were looking for. Uh, Jesus wasn't that kind of Messiah. That's So he said, yes, I'm here to, quote unquote, save you. But I believe, um, and this is why we misunderstand what Jesus is saying, what he's talking about when he uses this apocalyptic hyperbole, when he talks about whether with the destruction that's coming, whether, you know, the stars fall from the sky and the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. He's quoting Old Testament prophets when they were prophesying against Babylon or Edom or Egypt or even Jerusalem uh, in different cases. He Because those Old Testament prophets say the exact same things. They use the exact same phrases. So when Jesus is using those same phrases um, to his people in Jerusalem, I, I believe what he's saying to them is, I am showing you another way. Isaiah says that when the Messiah shows up, he will show us his path. And those who follow his path will decide to study war no more and to beat their swords into plowshares. And that's what the Messiah who showed up, that was Jesus. That's what he preached. And so what he was saying was, guys, look, I can see you are all determined. You are on this path of violence. You want to overthrow the Roman government. And he's saying that path leads to destruction. Listen to my teaching. Listen to what I'm saying to you, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Go the extra mile. All those teachings are for his people in that time in history that if they, he's saying to them, if you will follow not the path you're on, that path is going to lead you off the cliff into absolute annihilation and destruction and what, what is called the end of the Jewish age, the end of the age. Um, and by the way, that is where it led. They, those that didn't, the majority of them did not follow his message of peace of enemy love. Um, that was what his, I believe he, he was hoping that, you know, if they would listen to him, that, that they would have, could have avoided that fate, what happened in AD 70. Um, but th those are the warnings. That's what he's warning about. Not, not what's going to happen after they're dead, but a very real destruction, the same that came on Babylon and Edom and Egypt and Jerusalem in the Old Testament, same language, same warnings, um, but now spoken to Jerusalem and, and saying to them, if you keep going in this path, it's going to lead to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the priesthood, the end of the daily sacrifice, and that stuff, once it's over, it's game over. So don't go that direction. Follow what I'm teaching you, and you can avoid this. This is being saved. You can you can avoid that destruction, a very practical, real-world destruction. I'm convinced that most of the time, that's the kind of saving. That's, the, that's, what, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's trying to save his people at that time from, that, that outcome. Um, so I see it much more practical and, and not so spiritual necessarily. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Keith that Jesus was preaching annihilation. No, uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I was. It's probably time for me to plug one of my books. I, I wrote a short essay. Uh, it's on Kindle. It's like a buck or something. The Gospel, of the Resurrection, and so my perspective is you know, I, I like what Scott McKnight said that the gospel is the story of Israel resolved in the story of Jesus which is why I think we can't disconnect the OT from the New Testament um to me as I read uh, you know what the, the apostolic preaching uh, Jesus's resurrection is integral to the gospel message because of what the Old Testament tells us about sin leading to death as Paul says Romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus and so that uh, the resurrection is important because it's a proclamation that um, death is not the end, at least for some, for those who are in Christ. Um, so, um, I mean, you could talk, call that preaching hell. I mean, there, there is a warning about the wages of, about, about sin paying death. Um, 
I know that um, you know some folks like Greg Boyd kind of want to minimize the, um, the the fact that God is sort of an active agent in the punishing, which I think you know, the Bible does say in a number of places. Uh, but whether you take see God as sort of more passively letting us go that way or more actively uh, pushing it, there is I think a bad news um, part of this, which is that the wages of sin is death, and the good news part of it is that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. All right. Um, uh, there was, there was a lot of stuff that, uh, that we just didn't get to. And most of it, we, we kind of, uh, talked about in a roundabout way instead of, uh, addressing directly. Is there anything that I missed that you were like, I really wanted to say something about, about that or get into that? Feel pretty good. Okay. Yeah, no, I feel good about it. Um, this was good. I enjoyed it. Okay. All right. Well, then thank you very much for um, for doing this and taking uh, taking time out of your day. Is there anything else that that you all would like to plug? I think I'm good. I, I mentioned. I mean, I, I do write books. Uh, Keith mentioned that he's he's written some books as well. His Jesus Un series, which all start with Jesus Un something, uh, and um, I, I've got some you know books on some different topics, but I've been writing a little bit more on kind of Christian anarchism type stuff in, in more recent uh, years. Um, but yeah, if, if you put a link to my website or whatever, people will be able to find uh, find my stuff there. Yeah, um, I would say you know if you are curious about my crazy ideas and the things I talk and write about, um, I blog on Patheos. It, you can find it just by going to keithgiles.com, and it'll redirect you to my blog. Um, in addition to my books, which are on Amazon, um, I have a book called Solo Mysterium, Celebrating the Beautiful Uncertainty of Everything, uh, and a follow-up book coming up later this year uh, to that series. And um, yeah, I also teach some online courses on topics like this. Again, topics that are connected to my book. So like I, I have a course on hell, Jesus Undefeated. Uh, I have a course on the cross, the Jesus Unforsaken, talks about penal substitution and all that. Um, second coming, the end times, and all that stuff. So you can you can find information about that if you just go to my blog, keithjohns.com, or you can just message me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can find me there too. Uh, you guys are busy, and that makes me uh, especially honored that you would take time to uh, to have a discussion with me. So thank you all so much. Thanks, Derek. Thank you, Derek. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Cody. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.